0: Good morning. One of my favorite kinds of movies are westerns. It's probably the best genre ever invented for movies. I love westerns. Some are great, some are really terrible, but some are really good. One of the classics, of course, is High Noon with uh, Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly. I almost said Gene Kelly. Wouldn't that be funny? But, of course, what makes this movie, what made that movie so great was the tension in it. You know, High Noon is the name of it, and it focuses on this, this imminent showdown that's going to happen when the train arrives at High Noon. And uh, so it, the, the movie is famous for this, this tension that it creates. It's not so famous for the music. I don't know if you remember, but there's like one song in that whole movie. Do not forsake me, oh, my darling. It's like, oh, he listened to it over and over throughout that. But anyway, so now that I've said that, you'll be thinking of it all afternoon. (laughs) But the tension in that movie is masterful. Uh, I saw a remake of the movie some some 10, 15 years ago, and they just couldn't reproduce the tension in it. Um, There's no real sense of impending deadline. And that was really what the original High Noon was all about. In fact, th- for the remake, they could have changed the title from High Noon to Late Afternoon, about five ish. <laughs> but one reason we like High Noon or relate to it so much is because we can relate to the issue of deadlines. Deadlines. What would we do without a deadline? What would we do without the high noons in our lives? We'd never get anything done, we wouldn't pay our bills. Uh, We wouldn't leave the house on time. We still don't leave the house on time. We would uh, we would struggle with a lot of the things that have to be done if there wasn't a point at which it had to be done. We would continue to procrastinate all the way up through the moment that that it's due. You know, I thought, what if we were given a deadline for our spiritual life? What if the Lord told you? You know, by January, I really want you to have this anger thing down. That's your deadline. You need to get that worked out. Well, fortunately, the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't give us a deadline in the sense of, uh, here's the line in the sand, and if you don't come across it, you're out. You're voted off the island. We have a real deadline, though, and we have a real high noon, and it happens as soon as the lord comes let's look together at 1st peter chapter 4 1st peter chapter 4 1st peter has done a great job the great apostle the humble fisherman from galilee the lord taught him so many things in the 30 years since he walked with christ at the time that he penned this book So far in the book, he's taught us that we need to have an eternal perspective, that the trials that we deal with in life are hard, but the good news is that they're only temporary. With an eternal perspective, we have the blessing of hope, hope that something is going to happen, that high noon is good news. It's not bad news. That The deadline that we're waiting for or the impending moment when the train pulls into the station, as it were, is good news. And we live with that hope. And because we have that hope of the next life, we realize that in this life, as Peter says, we are aliens and strangers. We're pilgrims. And this world is not our home. We're just passing through. And because that's true, we have three realms in, that we sort of live in, in in this intermediate time, whether it's the public realm re- relating to our, our government or the professional realm with, re- with relation to our profession, or the private realm re- regarding our home. Regardless of the realm, we, have, we need to have an ever-ready message, Peter says, because if you live the way that you're supposed to live… If we live as Christ wants us to live in each of these realms, then ideally, someone is going to say, why do you live this way? How can you have a, a hope and a passion that goes beyond all the frustration that you're dealing with in life? And Peter says, you need to be ready with a, uh, an explanation for the hope that you have within you. And then he gives us sort of a motivation we looked at last week as we started uh, in chapter four, where he talks about, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, you arm yourselves with the same purpose. So we have a, a purpose to follow Jesus Christ and no longer to live for the lusts of men but for the will of God. So today, as we start in verse seven, the apostle Peter tells us what that will is what are we to devote ourselves to between now and high noon verse 7 says this the end of all things is near therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer the end of all things peter says peter tells us about the deadline and he says it is at hand it is imminent. It's near. Uh, literally, the, uh, the verse says, the end of all things has come near. You know, we're not waiting on anything for Jesus to come. There's no prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. There's no government official that has to rise up. There's nothing we're waiting on Israel to do. We're not even waiting to see Jesus' face in a taco or something. We're waiting on nothing but him and his sovereign plan. The end of all things, Peter says, is at hand. It's going to happen any moment. It is imminent. And Jesus says when he comes, he'll come quickly. Um, And that's good news because we, we need that sense of urgency. We need to know that today could be the day. Because honestly, if we knew what time uh, Jesus would be coming, like if he let us know, by the way, I'm not going to come for another 37 years, how do you think we'd live our spiritual lives if there was no sense of eminency, if there was no sense of urgency, if there was no realization that, you know, we could stand before God today? And it's not really a sense of fear. I guess there is an appropriate amount of that because we, uh, he's, he's our sovereign holy God. But I think there's more in the, of a sense of focus, passion, that we don't want our lives to amount to a stack of paychecks and a few laughs. We want it to amount to a life that was lived for the glory of God. Um, if you've got an opportunity to share the Lord Jesus Christ with somebody, then, you know, take the opportunity. Be able to give a reason for the hope that you have within you. If you see somebody that is down, take the opportunity to go over them to them and encourage them or to listen to them. The end of all things is at hand. Peter gives us a therefore. In light of the fact that it could happen at any moment, he tells us, therefore, in light of that, here's what we do. Have an eternal perspective, and he gives us a couple of commands here, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. Sound judgment, it it basically means to be able to reason and think properly. Uh, sober spirit, these really are almost synonymous commands, means to be in control of your thought processes and thus not be in the danger of thinking irrationally. So to have sound judgment and a sober mind means that your mind is controlled by nothing else but God, This it's the idea of sobriety, to focus. And Peter tells us, why should we have such mastery of our minds? For the purpose of prayer or literally of prayers, it's plural. Our mind is to be ready all the time. Sometimes the Bible kind of gives interesting commands in the context of prayer. For example, we, re- we read several, uh, a couple chapters ago when Peter said in chapter 3, he said, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with the weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered." It's like, whoa, that kind of came out of left field. Prayer, yeah, prayer, is that important? Um, Samuel told Israel, he said, "...moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you." Jesus told Peter, remember Peter, the author here that we're reading, Jesus told Peter why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Paul told the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing, a word as Dr. Toussaint has taught us many times, the, the phrase without ceasing doesn't mean incessantly, but rather like a niggling cough. It's just <coughs> it just kind of comes intermittently all throughout the day. We are to have, as Peter says, a mindset ready to pray. And I think the passages that I've cited here, and there are others, appear odd because we underemphasize the importance of prayer. You want a great book on prayer, read the great Civil War pastor E.M. Bounds. E.M. Bounds on prayer. And uh, he's got, I don't know, he's written probably four or five books on prayer. There's a big, thick one. Uh, called E.M. Bounds on Prayer, and it's just like all of his prayer books, but there's one in particular in there called The Power of Prayer that is a wonderful book. So if you need kind of a jump start to your prayer life, E.M. Bounds, The Power of Prayer, that'll do it for you. Peter tells us through the inspiration of God's Spirit to keep our minds ready for prayer. You know, George Mueller, his Diary chronicles his devotion in prayer. Let me read to you just a portion of it. Mueller wrote, In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on the land, on sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might be, 18 months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thanked God and prayed on for the others. Five years elapsed, And then the second was converted. I thanked God for the second and prayed on for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them, and six years passed before the third was converted. I thanked God for the three and went on praying for the other two. These two remained unconverted. And 36 years later, he wrote that the other two uh, sons of Mueller's friends were still not converted. And he wrote, but I hope in God, I pray on and look for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. And then in 1897, 52 years after he began praying, these two men finally were converted after the death of George Mueller. Mueller understood what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that they should always pray and not give up. Luke 18, verse 1. Peter told us in the previous chapter, he said in chapter 3, verse 12, "'The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer.'" Literally, as we looked into that, it said that his ears are are into their prayers, that God focuses and bends down and listens and focuses on our prayers. "'The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous.'" When I was a student at Dallas Seminary, the seminary had a deal with the Tom Landry, Tom Landry Center, which, was, which is a, a, a workout facility near, near the seminary, where the students could use the facility for a song, basically. So I would go. I would drive down from uh, – uh, we lived not in Dallas at the time, so I'd go in early before all the traffic, and I'd get there, and I'd, I'd work out early before my classes, And one day, I was in the weightlifting area, and I heard across the room, I put down the dumbbells that I had, these little five-pound dumbbells, (laughs) and I walked over because clearly this man needed help. Turns out he didn't need help. It looked like this Arnold Schwarzenegger Hulk underneath this mass of weights and he was screaming at the top of his lungs as he was bench pressing these this stack, you know, over and over and I just thought, wow a little while later I heard him go just continue to go and I thought, this man sounds like he's giving birth (laughs) and then it got kind of annoying it was almost, I felt like it was like look at me, maybe that wasn't his heart But it was annoying because, I mean, the man expressed every vowel in the English language. And I thought at the time, I thought, you know what, that guy is a fanatic. And then it hit me. A fanatic is somebody that takes something more seriously than I do. Right? A fanatic is sort of a subjective term. When we read George Mueller's prayers, we think, kind of a fanatic with prayer, wasn't he? But that's only because Mueller took it so much more seriously than we do. Praying like Mueller seems fanatical, and if that seems a stretch, look at what Peter writes in verse 8. Above all, he says, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now Peter shifts from, the, from our relationship with God in prayer now to our relationship with one another. When Jesus Christ was asked to summarize the whole Old Testament, he did it in one word, love. He said you can boil it down to two commands and one, or, or two passages as it were, but one verb." And that is, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, but love is the common denominator between those things. And ultimately, we've, we come to understand that we show our love for God by how we love people. And Peter says, above all, that is, make it your primary focus in your relationships to keep fervent in your love. The word here for love is our familiar term agape. It's a love that loves because of the value of a person, not because of the actions of a person. We don't love people because they make us feel good. We love them because God loves them. We love them because God loves us. And that's hard because that requires self-sacrifice, which is why Peter says, keep fervent, because it's easy to get tired of this kind of love. It doesn't do much for us emotionally. It takes from us emotionally. In fact, the word that Peter uses here uh, for keep fervent is a word that literally means stretch. It's, uh, it's used of an athlete that is straining for the tape, uh, of an athlete that's straining his heart out to win a race. Every muscle is taut, Every effort is made to accomplish the purpose. It's like that Hulk in the gym that day. That's what loving other people is like sometimes. Sometimes, don't you just want to come up to somebody and go, "Ah! This is what it's like. I know nobody in here wants to do that. But why do we have to be fervent in love? Why stretch and strain beyond our comfort? Peter says, because it's that kind of love. That covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? I think we've misunderstood this verse. Peter is paraphrasing from Proverbs. Uh, In fact, let's turn back to Proverbs 10. Keep your finger there in 1 Peter, but turn back to Proverbs 10, verse 12. Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hebrew poetry is written in parallel lines. Be sure and always notice that because you never want to take one line without the other. Hebrew poetry is written in parallel lines where one line helps interpret the other either by continuing the thought, usually with the word and, or by contrasting the thought with the word but. Here is an example of a contrast. Proverbs 10, verse 12 says this, "'Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions.'" Now you've got to take those two together. You can't just say love covers all transgressions. You've got to take the line before it, hatred stirs up strife. So what we're talking about here is a love in contrast to hatred, a love that is reconciled as opposed to a relationship where there's animosity. This is the verse that Peter is paraphrasing, Proverbs 10, verse 12. A lot of times when we quote this, love covers all transgression, gives the impression that we just kind of turn a blind eye to it, that we cover the transgression by ignoring it or just, you know, not dealing with it. That's not that's not what the verse is saying. Love is the opposite of strife. So turn back to 1 Peter and look at this once again in the context that he gives it. He says, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. It's not the first time Peter's challenged us to be loving. Remember back in chapter 3? Look at chapter 3 real quickly. Uh, Chapter 1, sorry. Chapter 1, verse 22, Peter says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. See, there's the word fervently once again. Fervently love. So it's not the first time he's challenged us. But because this command we read in chapter 4 is also in the same book as the command here in chapter 1, verse 22, we're reminded that Peter is contrasting the first love, a sincere love of the brethren, which is from the word Philadelphia, which means a feel-good love. It's the potluck love. It's the koinonia lunch love. It's the love of uh, we enjoy being around each other, but I'm really glad, you know, when we can part. It's that kind of love versus the agape love that is a love of passionate sacrifice because of the inherent worth of people. So back in chapter 4, when Peter says, be hospitable, I'm sorry, when he says, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins, Proverbs 10 and 1 Peter 1 give us a context of this verse that it's not simply wink-winking at an offense and just sweeping it under the rug, but, but letting your relationships be a sacrificial love of reconciliation. Only a love that's unconditional can forgive when somebody sins against you, when somebody acts contrary to the will of God and the law of God, and only keeping fervent in that commitment (coughs) covers a multitude of sins. Now, this kind of selfless love overflows into a couple of very practical areas, and Peter tells them to us here beginning in verse 9. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Oh, those last two words. The word hospitable has as its root a lover of strangers or, or guests. You know, before the world of uh, hotels, the, the uh, network of hotels that we have all, all around, people would need to stay in other people's homes. If somebody was traveling, you know, and someone was coming to visit the church, you'd stay in somebody's home. You wouldn't just, you know, go to a motel. Today we'll open our homes for Bible studies, small groups, prayer groups, you know, family. Um, and that's great, but, you know, when's the last time you've done that? You remember how much work that is. I mean, you've got to clean the house for hours, for an hour and a half Bible study. You're, you're at it all afternoon. Don't look at me like that. You do it too. It sounds like such a great idea to have folks over until you realize what it takes, which is why Peter adds those last two words, that opening your home and being hospitable and inviting people into the comfort of a place that will give them a context of the love of God can tempt us to be complainers and grumblers. In fact, I think the NIV even translates it that way to be hospitable without grumbling. So selfless love overflows not only in hospitality but in another area, verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You notice in the last several verses a common thread. This is now the third time Peter has used the phrase, one another. Have you noticed that? Verse 8, keep fervent in your love for one another. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. Notice what Peter assumes here that we know, that is, every one of us has received a gift. Every one of us has received a special gift, and the word that's used here is a, a word that means referring to basically our spiritual gift. It's, it literally refers to a gift of grace or a free gift, but it's referring to a, 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 a spiritual gift that God has given you as a Christian, that he has gifted you in some way. He has empowered you to be a blessing to other people in some way, and we're all different. Peter says each one has received it, and he says that we're to we're to employ it, we're to use that gift in the manifold grace of God. Manifold. You know, if you're an auto mechanic, you know what a manifold is, but other than that, we don't use manifold all that much. Even as, uh, when you think of it as a, uh, uh, with relation to a car, a manifold has the idea of Uh, a central location from which, you know, a lot of other pipes or gadgets pop out. You can tell I'm a mechanic. (laughs) But you've got a central location with lots of pipes and stuff that that run out of that location from one location. It's not a bad illustration because we have from the Lord a manifestation or a, a manifold of various gifts from one central source. That's the idea. The manifold grace of God is speaking of the incredible variety of God's gifts that he's given to us that have the common, have a common source, and that is the Lord. It is the manifold grace of God. It's a picture of his grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that each one of us has received the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Interesting the way he phrases that. I think that's 1 Corinthians 12, around verse 7. He says, The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So many different gifts for one purpose, for the common good. And it's a gift that's edification for the whole church, which is such a great perspective. When you think about the the ways that some of the people, or all of the people, I should say, but we're aware more than others, those particularly that are up front, the gifts that the Lord has blessed the body of Christ with, when God gifts, let's say, a Doug Williams with the, with the gift of administration or service, this is not God's gift to Doug. It's God's gift to us through Doug. The gift that God gives to each one of us is a gift to the church. It's not a gift to the individual. My gift of teaching is not God's gift to me. Uh, it, it's God's gift to the body, and it's the same with your gift. God has gifted people for the purpose of, ex- of in- encouraging the body of Christ, not the individual. So when you think about that, think about your particular area, your unique giftedness is not just for you as, as much as it is just for me. It's for the body. And he mentions it in a couple of different ways. You see, just because we're on the same team doesn't mean we all play the same position. I love that. the man It's the manifold grace of God. So we use our different gifts to work together. Look at verse 11. He gives a couple of examples. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so as by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter puts the gifts that God has gifted the body of Christ into two really simple categories, speaking and serving, speaking and serving. If God has given you an ability to speak, And that doesn't just mean like what I'm doing now. It means like evangelism, or it means like being around the table with children. Anything in which you open your mouth and encourage somebody or exhort somebody. Peter says, do it as if, uh, let him do so as whoever speaks, as it were the utterances of God. So when you're ministering to someone, and your mouth is involved, your words, think of that, that you're ministering to them as if you're speaking to them the very words of God, and even better, when you actually can read the Bible or share the Word of God. That's how seriously we're to take it. And then he gives another category. If God has given you a heart to serve, whether it's through caring for someone's need or for praying for someone or serving behind the scenes, doing something that maybe no one knows about or no one sees but God. How do you do that? He says you do it as by the strength which God supplies because you'll want to get weary of doing that. So whether you're speaking or whether you're serving, Peter says here's the motive, so that in all things God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Because the end is near, because high noon is coming, Peter says, we serve other people for the glory of God. That's the motive. And honestly, that's what keeps you going when you're tired of serving. Because it ain't always peaches and cream, as you know serving in the body of Christ, you're having to do all the difficult things that Peter is saying here. I mean, he he doesn't tell us all these commands and all these difficult things because it's easy. Or if it's just a matter of doing them uh, automatically, it isn't. We have to hear it, and we have to hear it again and again and again. And the great thing about the grace of God is that we can hear it over and over. He He allows us that, that we can grow to become more like Jesus Christ. Whoever speaks is to do so as one speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves as one who is serving by the strength of, that God supplies with the goal of God's glory. And then he ends by saying amen. It's not the end of his book, but he, he, he says amen at this particular point. You know what amen means? Amen isn't just um, a sanctified period on the end of a prayer to, as a cue to let you know when to open your eyes. And in Jesus' name is not sort of the precursor to, oh, we're about to wrap it up. Amen is a, is a Greek word, actually, it's a transliteration, which sometimes is kind of like baptism, it's sort of a in a way it's sort of a cop out from the translators who don't want to choose what it actually means so they just transliterate it and say baptize they don't they don't want to say dunk or immerse though that's what the term means for baptize and a- amen is sort of a similar thing it's just sort of come down through the ages and we just sort of say amen but amen means yes it means truly like when Jesus says, you know, truly, truly, I say to you, the Greek words there are, amen, amen, I say to you. It's, it's, it's like what you say when you say yes. Like if you hear good news and you, you say yes, that's sort of like, you know, a, a secular amen. It's the same idea. So when Peter says that God gets the glory and then he says amen, it's like him saying yes, Let's try that together. Let's all say yes really loudly. Ready? Yes. yes. Hey, whoa, that was great. <laughs> so, that was great. So let's try that let's try that again. I'll read the passage and instead of saying amen, let's say yes. So I'll read verse 11. So here's the clue, the cue. Right after I say forever and ever, you say yes, nice and loud, okay? So Verse 11, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Yes! That's the idea. That's perfect. And I hope that that sort of that in your mind that amen is not just "huh, amen what's for lunch <laughs> amen is you saying yes to what was just in the word of God or what was just prayed out loud the end is near Peter tells us and he gives us four clear applications you could cue the music to high noon right now do not forsake me oh my darling <laughs> just kind of hum that in your mind as I, as I wrap this up because high noon is coming because the end is near prayer love hospitality service and the common thread through all of these is a lack of concern for what's in it for me because the motive is the glory of God yes it's not what's in it for me prayer it's not what's in it for me it's the glory of God that's the motive love it's not what's in it for me It's the glory of God that's the motive. Hospitality, service, it's not what's in it for us. It's what's in it for Christ. That's why we do these things. And that's how we can keep doing them. Because in our own strength, honestly, we get really weary. We rely on God's strength alone. Well, let's pray. And uh, when I say amen, you know, that means, yes, we're done. Our Father, we're grateful that Peter has given us these words, such simple commands, none of which are brand new, but they all shake us out of our stupor. They, they remove the cobwebs from these familiar commands and remind us that this is the meat and potatoes of the Christian life, prayer, love, hospitality, service, these are not options. These are not electives in our walk with you. These are commands, and we want to obey them because we want Christ to get the glory. And so, Father, as we make our way uh, through the week, as we keep our focus on Jesus Christ, and when you bring to our minds these commands and opportunities to serve through speaking, to serve through uh, serving— that our motive would be for the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who deserves the glory and who has dominion forever and ever. And we pray in his name, amen.